It's a question which I'd never, ever thought of in relation to the Lord Jesus, ever. It's strange, really, that I shouldn't have thought of it, because I should, I should have done, really, but I didn't. Here was the question he asked. It was to the kids. He simply said, if you were going to a place you know was dangerous and you know that you were likely to be hurt there, would you go? If you were going to a place you knew it was dangerous and you knew you were likely to be hurt, would you go there? Of course, I mean, everyone would say, surely, no way. If, if I know I'm going to be hurt, I'm not going there. It's a bit like me seeing some of the rides in, uh, in Disneyland. I look at them and I say, I'm not going on there. No way. <laughs> Other people have the same idea. The truth of the matter is that the Lord Jesus, at this point we were looking at in Luke chapter 9, right at the end of the chapter, he's now in a position where he's setting his face to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem now. It's I set my face from, uh, from uh, Ponte de Lice to here this morning. So what? It doesn't make much difference, does it? Change of direction, but in terms of the Lord Jesus, when he sets his face to Jerusalem, it's highly significant. Matthew says the same thing in Matthew chapter 16. He says it in a slightly different way. From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's now setting his face to Jerusalem. He's now on the Calvary Road. And from now on, though know, we will return to Galilee briefly at different times. From now on, there is only one direction his ministry is going. And Luke highlights the transition in a big way, more than any of the other writers of the Gospels. And he uses that phrase which you, you see in that passage from verse 51. He sets his face to, to Jerusalem. He sets his face to Jerusalem. So here's the first question. What does set his face mean? What does it actually mean? Well, if you look in Isaiah, you'll find that 800 years before the Lord Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, the suffering servant described in Isaiah explains why he's setting his face and describes it in a way which is even more setting his face. Let me read it to you. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint I know that I shall be not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. He vindicates me. So here's the Lord Jesus. He's setting his face like flint, it says. Eighteen years before. That's what he's asked. Flint is a very hard. 
got to glue together separately. And then after a minute, put them together. And they will never separate. I just have to watch it and get my fingers caught. Have you ever got to do that? Yeah, the fingers stuck. Setting or something in glue is really hard. And these new glues are really stuck. And the Lord Jesus sets his face in more ways than one in terms of glue. And it talks about what he's going to face. He's human. And he's fearful. And at least careful what he concerns about the pain he's going to face. And not just the pain, the moment we'll see that. He knows he's suffering, he's suffering, he's human. But as God, he knows exactly what he's going to suffer. He knows the details. He knows the pain. He knows the agony. This passage in Isaiah describes it well. It talks about suffering spitting. Talks about him being having his beard plucked. It talks about him being struck. He talks about being disgraced. And yet he talks about the vindication of his father. He sets his face to Jerusalem. And as he sets his face to Jerusalem, he knows exactly what he's walking into. Spurgeon says it interestingly. This is what Spurgeon says. Mockery was a large factor in our Lord's suffering. Judas mocked him in the garden. The chief priests and the scribes laughed him to scorn. Herod set him at nothing. The servants and the soldiers jeered at him and brutally insulted him. Pilate and his guards ridiculed his loyalty, and on the tree all sorts of horrible jibes and hideous taunts were hurled at him. Ridicule is always hard to bear, but when we're in intense pain, it's so heartless, so cruel, that it cuts to the quick. Consider the Saviour crucified, racked with anguish far beyond anything we can imagine. And then picture that motley multitude all wagging their heads, or making mouths in bitter contempt of the poor suffering victim. Surely there must have been something more than the crucified one than they could see, or else such a great and mingled crowd would not have unanimously honoured him with such contempt. Was it not evil confessing in the very moment of its greatest apparent triumph that after all it could do no more than mock at their victorious goodness that was then reigning on that cruel cross? Remember those words in the coronation? The throne of the Lord Jesus is a cross. His crown is a crown The Lord Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. Knew it all. And as a man, he knew that pain was going to be agonized. He knew the detail of the suffering he was going to bear. Flint is a very, very hard work. Used figuratively in the Bible, someone said, to express hardness, firmness, the horse's hooves, the toughness of an impossible task, and then the inflexibility of an unwavering determination. Jesus is setting his face to face all those things, ridiculed, being spattered, being ignored, being hated, being the uh, focus of people's so called humour. In Luke chapter 13, verse 31, we're told this, that the, that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, 
Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And then in Matthew chapter 14 it says this, and though he wanted to be he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But on his way to Jerusalem, not only did he have to face what he for the Lord is threats. And he knew about them, and others knew about them. And they warned. And so here's the servant, the suffering servant, setting his place on the flint. So here's the second question. What did Jesus do? What would make Jesus do? What would make him set his face like a flint to Jerusalem? But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, something to his heart and mind. It says this looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of the faith, and for the joy that was set before him, and joy because, despite my shame, he was seated the right hand of his throne of God. He's not defeated as he goes to the cross. He's not one who's uh, he's going out and saying nothing about it. He's not like that. But he's right here for the joy. So the Lord Jesus is joyful in the face of the suffering. This is a remarkable thing. And why is he joyful? Well, it's a bit of scripture. He says that he's joyful. He's joyful. Jesus is not saying, oh, woe is me. He's setting his face to rescue people like you and me. And don't we need it? And don't know, doesn't the world need it? Where would we be without him? What hope is there in the world without him? And so he's not thinking about his own. He's not thinking about his own welfare. He's not thinking about his well-being. He's not thinking about his pain. He's not thinking about his humiliation. He has joy ahead of him. And he knows it. And you and I are part of his joy. The Lord Jesus is truly an amazing God, an amazing son. He himself set his face like a flint to Jerusalem to rescue you and to rescue me. And that gives him joy. Here's the Lord Jesus chapter 9. As he changes direction to go down this Calvary road. Okay, here's the third question. What about the disciples in chapter 9? What are they like? What are the disciples like? They see their Saviour, they see the Lord Jesus, they see 
his description of what's going to happen to him, uh, and uh, they know he said this. Well, so what do they do? Well, let me go through just a few things in this chapter because you're about to find out that they're the complete opposite of what the Lord Jesus is doing. He's not thinking himself. Let's just look at a few passages. Luke chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. So it's just this chapter. There's a huge crowd who interrupt their retreat. And uh, they have meager resources. And so Jesus asks, What are we going to provide for them? And the disciples have no idea. They've seen what the Lord Jesus has done. great resources but the disciples didn't get it and they didn't get it and in chapter 9 verse 28 to 32 Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah it's such an incredible event imagine you were one of the disciples Moses and Elijah were there alive in the meeting of the Lord Jesus it's just a story it be could you believe that something was happening what happened to the disciples we will see And sometimes we're a bit like that, aren't we? We'd be so where's the blessing? Where's the greatest blessing? On the mountain top? Well, it's great when things are great, isn't it? And it encourages us. But real learning happens when we're going through real tough times. Disciples had that to learn and they were busy, I guess, 
learning it slowly but surely. But and then again, if, if you look at uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 43 to 45, they give them to fear. They're afraid. This is just one chapter. And we see their failings and weaknesses, and they're afraid. They're afraid to ask Jesus a very simple, straightforward question when they couldn't heal this particular person. And Jesus did. And and they're afraid to ask why couldn't we do it? They give in to fear. And there's no need the Lord Jesus would have explained. But they never asked. Whenever we're facing challenges and things we don't know, we have to ask why. We do it and meet with us. And then there's Luke chapter 9, verse 46 to 48. They fought the position. They're actually fighting position. Who's the most important? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Jesus is on the Calvary Road. And all they want to know is who's the most important. There's no way. There's no feeling about the Lord Jesus. It's just about me. And then in Luke chapter 9, verses 49 to 50. It's taken up with feuding. They start feuding, uh, and they want to uh, they want to deal with people in ways that is inappropriate. Jesus says, "Don't be afraid." Against human Jesus is really saying we have to have rivals and enmity. If they're trusting me, if they're following me, they're trusting me. They want to kill the opposition. And now they get in the There's opposition. It's amazing, really. And then, chapter 9, and verse 57 to 62. Disciples will overstate their commitment, but never deliver on their promise. He was only thinking of us. He was only satisfied the Calvary. And he had to set his face like Flint because it was not going to be a pleasant road. It was going to be a tough road. But there was joy set before him. But the disciples, none of that. <laughs> Me first. Let's bring down fire on this road. Let's have a tribal warfare between people and people. Let's stay here. Let's not bother. Jesus kept on training them to become servant leaders.
And he succeeded despite their failure. All his successes and the way he turned their weaknesses to strength is recorded by Luke, the same writer, in the book of Acts. Jesus isn't going to give up on you and he's not going to give up on me. Isn't that wonderful? I can think of a million reasons why I should give up on me and given up on me a long, long time ago. I could uh, draw up a huge list and I could say, well, you wouldn't bother with me. I failed you then. I was worse than the disciples. I just thought about me. And there was a Calvary road and I knew about it, but I just went in the opposite direction. The wonderful thing is the Lord Jesus doesn't give up on you and he doesn't give up on me. Isn't that wonderful? He cares for us. He helps us, He forgives us, and He takes us that step further. So what about you, and what about me? What about both of us? What's, uh, what can we say about us? Well, <clears throat> we need to be those who do follow Him, and put our trust in Him. Uh, there's a simple old saying, joy. Jesus first, the second, the Son's last. That's the Calvary road in a nutshell. Jesus first, or the second, the Son's last. Beautifully, the real blessing is the Calvary road. The world and everything we see on the telly most of all is going to say, this is the world. It's all about you. But real blessing, real joy, is the Calvary road. The road that seeks to serve it. We try too often to be delivered from punishment instead of the sin that leads us behind. We try too often to be delivered from punishment instead of the sin that lies behind. We're anxious to escape the pain rather than the things which give God Consider him, says the writer to the Hebrews, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So that you may not grow weary or faint Just as we're going to sing in a moment, we're reminded of Christ my Savior, living me from day to day. So Christ is our example. But more than that, he's the one who enables us. He gives us the help. So when we're desperately weak, when we're struggling in a big way, we cry out to God in the most amazing way. So the Spirit is the us step by step. He wants us to be servants. Paul himself said this, um, Paul set his face like a flint to serve God. Here's the words he said, not that I have already obtained it, all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, Forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize of which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I press on. I follow this goal. I keep on the Calvary road. I set my face. And that's, in a sense, uh, the simple message of this, uh, this, uh, this sermon. Let's set our faces on the Calvary road, 
to serve him. I don't know if you know a village called Blaenanach. It's on the west coast in Ceredigion. There's a small church still there, surrounded by a graveyard, still well kept as well. Well, in 1904, at seven o'clock in the morning, there was a meeting devoted to asking questions. And at that meeting, uh, the speaker was Seth Joshua, who was a, a well-known preacher in those days. And uh, in, during that time, there was one man who was there who eventually became the leader of the revival. And 100,000 people, at least, were converted in the 1904 revival. But in that prayer meeting, what was the prayer that this young man, not Seth Joshua, but the young man who was there prayed? Simple prayer, incredibly simple. And God gave him the prayer and he prayed it. And the prayer was this, Lord, bend me, bend me. It's not about me, it's about him. It's not about going my way, bend me, to go your way. Because that's the way of blessing and joy and reaping and real, real spiritual uh, enhancement and enriching, revival followed. And sometimes we're too proud or too fearful. You and I know that those things happen. So often we're too much interested in ourselves to admit our weakness and say, Lord, I want to go that way, but Lord, help me by your grace to go on this. I'm nearly finished. Just one, uh, one illustration. If it doesn't help you, forget it. And if it does help you, use it. It's the illustration of the magic penny. I don't know if you've heard the magic penny. But the magic penny is like this. I can give you now a million pounds. Anyone interested? A million pounds now. Though I did hear that someone's just won 114 million on the jackpot. What if I were to offer you a million pounds? Or, or, you can have a penny. A magic penny. And the magic penny, all it does is doubles every day. So, day two, it's twopence. Day three, it's fourpence. That's all it is, a magic penny. And you've got it for a month. 31 days. I'll take it away from you then. So much do you want? A magic penny? Still only a penny, or maybe Well, you probably know the answer. <laughs> if you take the magic penny, after about 20 days, you'd still be saying, I wish I'd taken a million pounds. Look at, look at this paltry bit of money I've got. You know, it's really not a lot. But 25 days, well, it's starting to grow. But by the end of 31 days, I'm told by the man who did the calculation for me, we have over 10 just having the million pounds. Now why do I say that? Well simply because sometimes we say, I want to be holy. And we sort of make it this big thing. But actually the small thing would be today to say, well I'm not going to do that. And I am going to do that. Or we want to say, I want to, I want to be godly. I want to read the Bible. And that's a huge thing to say. But actually, why don't we just read a few verses today and a few tomorrow and a few the day after. Because those small steps will get us along further than just this big idea. Or maybe you've got a relationship that's broken down, someone you can't speak to, and you do want to pray, and 
that God will help you to, to be friends to them or to get to know that relationship. But sometimes it just requires so a little smile, a text, Jesus, a hello, or an email, or a little note, or a phone call. Small things that build up one after the other. And gradually, slowly, but surely, break down some of the barriers. The, the magic penny is oh, no great thing in itself, but it is a picture of us just in a small direction. Only how we move one more small step. How we move one more small One small step that's not about me, it's about other people. One small step that says, Oh, I don't do that, but I will do that. Because that will help. still giving and for you and for me just to encourage you let's uh, step out on that road let's have the mind of the lord jesus christ that helps us to want to serve him and bring him glory let's sing our